Hello everyone and first of all Happy New Year. Hopefully 2015 will be a great year for all of you. So today we have a great show and a great guest. We have J.M. Berger back on the show today to talk about one of his recent articles in Foreign Policy titled The Islamic State's Irregulars. And the question J.M. sort of puts forth in this article are questions, should I say more than one, what should we do with lone wolf attackers who are mentally unstable or deranged? Are they terrorists too? So this is a very interesting topic. So first of all, welcome to the show, JM. Thanks for having me. And just for our listeners who might not know of JM, he is the author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. And I am anticipating his new book that's coming out, which he's co-authored with Jessica Stern. And that will be out around March. That's what we're seeing on Amazon. And that is um, looking at ISIS, the state of terror. So I'm very excited when that comes out. I'm going to have my pre-order in already. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited, too. I'm I'm terrible at waiting. So I'm really, you know, the initial feedback we've gotten on it has been really good. And I'm, uh, I'm just really excited to get it out in front of people. So... Congratulations. And now, now that you said that, I just, I'm like, ah, oh, March, come along. <laughs> um, JM is also a security analyst and editor for the terrorism site IntelWire, which um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know about it. But. So why don't we start off with looking at the recent attacks that we've seen, um, a lot of different attacks overseas um, that sort of seem linked to what's going on in Syria and Iraq, but there's that gray line. So, JM, why don't you give us an idea of what's been taking place since the creation of the Islamic State and looking at these attacks that I just referred to? Yeah, so, you know, Islamic State's obviously it's an outgrowth of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So, you know, it existed as an organization before. And so over the course of the years, especially starting in 2013 and Continuing into 2014, we started to see what was kind of a small, but, you know, not necessarily big enough to comment on, like an uptick in these, in what we call lone wolf attacks. And, you know, I, everybody knows I've kind of gone on a rampage about that term before, but I've kind of given up fighting it because it's become part of the vernacular now. I mean, when we say lone wolves, we don't mean necessarily mean people who are completely acting alone, but people who are very minimally connected to a terrorist organization who act individually to the, or with us in a very small group to carry out something in their name. And so there's been kind of a, a small, there was a small but kind of noticeable uptick and it wasn't always clear what the attribution was up until relatively recently. Everybody sort of looked at Syria, the, the foreign fighting in Syria and people who came back from that and didn't necessarily make real strong differentiations among, you know, ask the questions about who who were they fighting with, which group were they with, what were they doing. But, you know, there was sort of a, a bump uh, in attacks that seemed to have very minimal connection to the network that were connected to ISIS or the Islamic State. And over time, you know, this was sort of increasing over the summer. And then in September, ISIS uh, spokesman Mohammed al-Abu uh, uh, I'm just. I'm going to call him Adnani because I'm just stumbling over my words. I didn't get enough sleep last night. Um, so Adnani uh, issued a statement in which he called explicitly for lone wolf attacks in response to U.S. airstrikes on ISIS, and he outlined several specific kinds of attacks. So he, he sort of 
put them out there in descending order. He said, you know, if you can build a bomb, then build a bomb. If you can't build a bomb, then get a gun. If you can't get a gun, then get a car and drive it into a crowd. If you can't get a car, then get a knife. So what we've seen since then is a very noticeable rise in, in these kinds of incidents. And some of them are fairly easy to associate with support for ISIS. People who tried to go to Syria, for instance, to join ISIS and were thwarted. And so they did this instead. In other cases, we're seeing people who are much less clear. Um, and, you know, the most prominent one and the one that kind of prompted me to write the article was uh, the attack in Sydney by uh, a Shia, you know, is this, this guy was a, a Shia Muslim for many years. He had come from Iran, moved to Australia, had a long history of kind of criminal and violent activity around him, erratic activity. And then in December, he, he took a strong interest in uh, the Islamic State. Um, he declared support for them on his website. And it seems like that happened really uh, just a couple of weeks before he took hostages in Sydney and and ultimately we have been ascribing that attack that that siege to uh the islamic state and it's a little bit unclear you know how much credit we should be giving them for events that are really a little bit marginal where there are these questions because you know there's a lot of reasons to ask this question like i mean you know for people who are really invested in uh mental health issues for instance that you know they don't want to see people with mental health problems being, you know, called terrorists. But really, in a, from a counterterrorism point of view, the more important thing is that we need to understand what ISIS's influence and what what they're inspiring with their ideology versus what they their violence might inspire. So somebody who was kind of inclined to violence anyway might see a violent ISIS video and be inspired to just do something violent without ever really understanding the ideology. Or somebody who, you know, possibly somebody who's severely mentally ill might just see that there were a bunch of stories on TV about beheadings and decide to behead somebody. And when we give ISIS credit for all of these things, then we may be giving them more credit for influence than, than they are due. And we need to understand really the complexion of who they're influencing and how they're influencing them. And, you know, there's an argument to be made that they are intentionally cultivating people who, who may be unbalanced or mentally ill uh, because it suits their purpose to have these people act out, even if they have only a very minimal connection to ISIS. Um, but, you know, I think that this is really, it's just really important to kind of drill down into this and understand the different levels at which their, their propaganda is working and try and figure out, which kind of problems we're looking at. Because everything right now, you know, over the last year, we've had a lot of talk about countering violent extremism. And, and all of that's based around traditional radicalization. It doesn't account for somebody who is set off by something they see on TV and, and carries out an act that, you know, may end up being attributed to ISIS, even though they really never had an interest in the group before. And that's one of the interesting things I find with the Sydney coffee shop, chocolate shop attack by, isn't it Monice? I don't know if that's exactly how they pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, and Haran Monice. But it was really interesting because as news bits were coming out on the internet, you know, you're seeing different things that he was trying to make it look like he was associated with ISIS, but he put up a flag that had nothing to do with <laughs> the right. correct group. And then he was wearing this headband that looked very Shiite, as you were saying. Um, 
And it's almost strange because you sit there and you think, well, he looks like he's trying to portray that. But on the other hand, he really doesn't know the correct images for the ideology that he's claiming he's representing. Um, so it was very, it was just a very surreal experience watching that unfold. And of course, horrifying. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think this, this case in particular is likely to get a lot of scrutiny and it may be helpful for us in the long run to try and understand some of the, the gray areas in this. Um, you know, yeah, he, he, you know, he did not have a Islamic state flag. He could have made one. I mean, uh, he didn't, he had a flag that is more commonly associated with a broad array of, uh, jihadist movements. So it had a jihadist flavor to it, but it, but it was not the specific kind of trademark flag that we all associate with ISIS now. Uh, he asked for a flag for one of those flags to be delivered to, to the scene. So, you know, there was, there, he clearly was at least thinking about this, but again, we don't really know what was going on in his head. He might've been seeing news coverage of it and see the people were associating it with ISIS and decided to latch onto it, you know, listening to the radio or reading tweets or something on his phone. So I think it's, you know, I think we're going to see more of these borderline cases. I think that ISIS is, pumping violence into, you know, our, our sort of ecosystem of communications in a way that we haven't seen, uh, really seen before, you know, in terms of an active group going out there and really promoting this kind of, uh, you know, indiscriminate violence. And I think that, you know, we're going to see examples of people who are agitated by ISIS into action rather than radicalized into action. You know, that there, there are people who have other issues going on in their life and, you know, they, they, something in this will resonate with them and they might take action without, without ever really, you know, fully even understanding what the ideology of ISIS is. And for instances in attacks like the Melbourne stabbing attacks that we had recently in the last past months, as well as the recent attacks in France where you see a number of attacks happening one after the other. I mean, how would you categorize those in comparison to just a one-off attack, like maybe the New York City man with the hatchet and this chocolate shop, coffee shop attack in Melbourne? Well, or Sydney, sorry, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is kind of new. I mean, we've seen lone wolf attacks in the past, and one thing that we've, you know, I I remember Will McCants asking this question a couple of years ago, and it's one that occurred to me too. Is like, like you know, we've never really seen a jihadist group, Al-Qaeda, do a campaign of terrorism in the West. You know, they, they do attacks, an attack happens, months or years will pass in between them. And the, the fact that so many of these happened in, in such a short period of time, if you, if you round these all up to be ISIS, right, you know, you decide all these marginal cases are, are ISIS influence, they're doing better in, you know, just a couple of months than Al-Qaeda's done in, in a few years. So, you know, this is, a, this is an increase. And it may not be entirely connected to ISIS, although I think that they're, what they do and how they put their message out there plays some role in it. You know, we're also seeing sort of a, an increase in mass shooting incidents, which may have some similar roots that, that are derived from something else that's going on. And some of these cases may be more responsible to, from that dynamic than necessarily from the, the message that ISIS is putting out. And I mean, building on that, we've seen Al-Qaeda calling for lone wolf attacks 
for a long time. And as you said, the success rate hasn't been as prominent and as strong as the success rate of the Islamic State in the past number of months. I mean, what kind of factors do you think play into that? Because it's amazing how the Islamic State or maybe the messages they're putting out, the feelings they're imparting into people, that they've had such a strong response in such a short period of time. So the, the, I think there's a couple of issues that, that really feed into this. Um, the first is that ISIS is a populist movement, uh, a populist jihadist movement, as opposed to Al-Qaeda, which was an elitist movement. So uh, Al-Qaeda created barriers to membership, and they wanted recruits who would really think about their ideology and understand it and do things in exactly the right way and do things for exactly the right reasons. And ISIS's attitude is much more, we'll take you. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are or, or what you're doing. If you're going to go out and do something that advances our cause, we're, we're likely to take you. And it's not completely uh, universal on that front. So there was a beheading in, in Moore, Oklahoma during the same time frame as some of this other stuff was going on. Uh, ISIS claimed credit for several attacks that happened around that date, but they didn't claim credit for that because it didn't seem to be clearly connected to them. It was an incident where somebody had been fired from a workplace and he, he came back and attacked some of his coworkers. So while they are not, they don't have universal acceptance of, of everything that looks like an ISIS attack, they do have a, a pretty broad uh, categories for acceptance, and they, they have accepted Sydney. They embraced it. They addressed the fact that this guy had a long history as a Shia and basically said, you know, if you pick up a weapon on behalf of our cause, then your, your past is forgiven. Whatever you did is forgiven. Um, so, you know, the, they, they've created a much lower barrier for entry. Uh, Al-Qaeda... Even even for the lone wolves, uh, their pitch was much more thoughtful, I guess is the word you want to use. Um, they wanted people to really follow their follow their agenda and really understand their message and, and really embrace the ideology. Um, and it's reflected in how they, they put out their messages. And, you know, when they would put out issues of Inspire with, you know, they would put out propaganda that said, hey, you know, let's build a bomb in the kitchen of your mom. That clashed with some of the other messaging that ISIS was putting out and or I'm sorry, that Al Qaeda was putting out. And, you know, what we saw is that a lot of people who were based in the United States or in Europe who were inspired to act by what they saw in Inspire magazine, they would they they weren't quite with the program. And what they would do is they would reach out to try and find other people to reinforce what they wanted to do. So you would start asking around, you'd want an accomplice or you'd want some support from Al-Qaeda to make it happen. And that's when you get caught. So then they, the FBI gets wind of them. Somebody in the community will, will tip the FBI off or they, they'll come across an FBI informant. And, and that's how you get caught is by talking about it. So the, these cases that we're seeing here, you know, we had the two cases in Canada, uh, the hit and run and, and the shooting attack near Parliament. And we had the siege in Sydney and we had the stabbing in Queens. And, and, and in none of these cases, there's no evidence that there, any of these guys discussed what they were planning to do with anybody in advance. So they felt comfortable acting without having to seek reinforcement. And that may account for the higher level of success that they're enjoying. So 
going back to these separate attacks around the world, we'll, we'll put it that way, a lot of these individuals, from what I've gathered from looking at the various cases, were on law enforcement radar prior to some of the attacks. I mean, not all of them, but there are a few that there were warning signs here or there, or as you said, they did potentially show some sort of, affili not affiliation, but fascination with the Islamic State, ISIS, and what was taking place in Syria, or tried to travel there. So looking at this, what does this say about law enforcement's ability or lack of to deal with individuals who are showing unstable tendencies and a draw to this extremism ideology? Yeah, there's a couple of levels to that. I mean, so in the if this is happening in the United States, uh, these instances, uh, it's a very good chance that the FBI would have tried to, on encountering these individuals, would have tried to draw them into a situation where they had to decide whether they wanted to be violent or not. So we've seen, you know, and I've written about this, it's become a very controversial tactic of setting up fake plots and seeing if the individual will will carry that plot out. So you give them a, you know, they think they're talking to somebody in Al-Qaeda, they get a fake bomb. Uh, there, There is a kind of formula to these things in order to avoid uh, meeting the legal definition of entrapment. So you have to give them certain opportunities to leave. You have to check, you know, say, you know, you don't have to do this. Give them opportunities to walk away. And then when they don't walk away, you arrest them and charge them with a terrorist plot, even though a real plot never happened. And so, you know, this is a lot of people have, I think, understandable discomfort with this tactic. But, you know, when you see what happened in these other cases, it raises that question is like, what do you do when somebody comes across your radar? Uh, how do you handle it? Do you, you can't surveil everybody. Um, you can't be on top of these these suspects in, in the kind of numbers that you would need to keep them from carrying out a split second attack, like driving a car into a, a crowd of people. You would never know. You'd have to be following every single movement that they made with a team of people who were prepared to respond at any moment to stop them. So it, it's difficult and it's going to get more difficult because uh, we're seeing growing numbers of people who are interested in going to Syria. So we're going to have people stepping on these tripwires more and more often and you know, there's only so many of them that we can handle. Uh, you know, when you talk to FBI profilers like uh, Dave Gomez, who's all things HLS on, on Twitter, uh, you know, he'll tell you it's like it's very difficult or impossible to know who is going to become violent and who's just going to talk about being violent. So, and, you know, I think a lot of people probably had this experience in their lives, uh, you know, whether in college or in their family history or or just in encounters on the street where you see somebody and you're worried, you look at them and you think, oh, wow, this person's kind of scary. You know, I think they're going to become violent. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, they don't. You don't call the police on every time you see something like that. You know, there's only a very, really, most of us, I think, only call the police if, if we really see that violence is imminent. So take that problem and then magnify it out into the, the law enforcement sphere and the sort of wide variety of activities that somebody can take part in that might flag that they're thinking about violence. And you can see that, you know, reliably predicting this is, is very difficult and, and we're never going to be able to stop all of them. When an individual has already done an attack, 
which a lot of these were not seeing individuals surviving attacks. <laughs> a lot of the time it's almost a suicide mission on their part as well. But I mean, society tends to place these people in jail, which, you know, completely they should be incarcerated in, at some level, but it doesn't always have a good mental health program as well. So it seems like we're placing a lot of individuals with potentially um, mental health issues as well as sometimes an extremist ideology. And, you know, they're in jail, whether they get out or not, depending on the type of crime and the time they're serving. I mean, do you think this is a sound method for individuals who have done crimes out of extremism? I mean, should there be other alternatives? Well, I think the the, the problem here and kind of making these distinctions and having options... Uh, options for what you do with somebody after they've committed violence. I mean, it's much broader than just uh, a discussion of extremism, you know, it really uh, goes into all kinds of violent crime. Uh, until now, there's, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of effort to sort of explore the mental states that, that go into somebody becoming radicalized into extremism. And, you know, it's very difficult to find, to build consistent profiles and sort of say like, you know, I mean, what we've, we've tended to do for the most part when you look at terrorism case studies is most of the time we kind of conclude that these guys are sane, rational actors. That, you know, maybe they have a, a mental issue such as, you know, a temper or disposition to violence or a problem with depression, but they're capable of making informed decisions and therefore being held responsible for their actions. Um, you know, and, and, and that's pretty consistent in the legal system over time. And I think that, you know, a lot of us who look at these cases also tend to view them that way. Um, it's very, it's very tough to know where the trouble lines. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to Dr. John Horgan, for instance, who's, who's really, you know, really knows the psychology of this stuff and, and really, uh, you know, has a lot of research and, and deeper thinking on it. And, uh, you know, I talked to my, my co-author, Jessica Stern on the ISIS book, who also has done just a tremendous amount of work on this stuff. And I think you end up, I uh, use a, a phrase that's sort of a journalism cliche, but, you know, you end up with more questions than answers. We don't have a real consensus framework for how to think about this in a way that is satisfying to all the constituents in the discussion. So, cause we have to satisfy the court system. We have to satisfy a political system. We have to satisfy, you know, the, the needs of, of mental health. And we have to also assign responsibility for a crime when it's committed. I mean, you know, that, that kind of, I think that there's a very high threshold in this country, at least for absolving somebody of responsibility for a violent crime. And I think that is to some extent appropriate. Um, I think that, it's 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 extremely difficult when you look at some of these cases to really know what's in somebody's heart and and exactly what motivated them to do something um i think that it is from a societal imperative perspective i think it makes sense to try to hold people responsible and treat people as if they are responsible actors people who are responsible for their actions um that said you know, if we're going to talk about countering extremism and, and trying to combat 
the occurrence of these incidents, then I think we need that's where we need to really kind of drill into this deeper and, and understand the dynamics that, of what's going on better. And when we do that deep drilling, maybe we'll come away from that with a with a ideas about how to change what happens after violence takes place, you know, and whether people need treatment, they need treatment in addition to prison incarceration, they need treatment instead of prison incarceration, you know, I think that exploring these issues more fully will, will probably give us a better basis to start talking about those kinds of changes. I, I would be hesitant based on my own limited knowledge of, of the range of options. I would be hesitant to say, you know, in a, in a very definitive way right now that, yeah, we, we totally need to do something differently on that front. Just in your opinion, I know this is, it's really hard once again, because sometimes in some of these cases, there's not enough evidence to see what the person that's produced one of these attacks, say like the Sydney attack or like the attacks in Canada and all of the ones that we've talked to, talked about at the starting of the show. But just in your opinion, looking at the Islamic State and their message that has been put forth and, and the increase in attacks compared to what we've seen with Al-Qaeda and their success with um, inspiring the so-called lone wolf. I mean, do you think the Islamic State is providing just a convenient excuse for violence from people that are potentially unstable? Or is this something that certain people see they may have been thinking about going out with a bang, so to speak, and by attaching themselves to the Islamic State, it gives them that last bit of fame. I mean, a horrible type of fame, of course, but do you think this is something that attention-seeking, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, um, on the part of the attackers at all? My my instinct is that that's what's happening, and I think we need more evidence. We need to really, you know, have more cases, look at more cases, and, uh, you know, we don't want to have more cases, but we want to look at the look at more cases when they occur, and really, as much as possible, uh, really flesh out what went into a person's taking action, and then from there, you know, we need to sort of start answering that question. I think. There's an argument to be made that this is happening in a kind of broader societal way. If you look at the uh, police assassinations in New York the other week, uh, there was an individual with a violent history who who had a lot of issues going on, uh, tried to kill his girlfriend before he went and assassinated these police. And, you know, our, on the technical definition of terrorism that I would use, you would you would put that guy in there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Definitely. when you look at the details of the case similar to for instance the the more oklahoma case uh you know you you look at this and you think you know okay what else is going on with this person i think that the islamic state is seeking to to exploit that dynamic whether i don't think it's just confined to the to cases that revolve around them but i think you know either incidentally or or fully intentionally they're trying to exploit this um what we see them doing is they're putting out a, a blizzard of propaganda, which is, you know, had slowed very briefly when the airstrikes first started on, on Syria and Iraq and has picked up again recently. And it's very violent. It's an alternation of, of extreme violence and these kind of scenes of a domestic utopia with children playing in the streets and, and people getting fed and having services delivered. And, you know, both of these extreme poles, both the uh, extreme violence, graphic violence, and this kind of dreamlike, unrealistic picture of a society can resonate with people who who have other issues in their lives. And I think that, 
you know, there's, there's a discussion to be had here, uh, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but there's definitely a discussion to be had about whether ISIS is really doing this in a, in a, you know, in a very calculated way and they knew what they were going to get as a result or whether they started doing this, they saw what the results is, they said, okay, this is working and we're going to keep doing it or whether they're oblivious to the dynamic. And I think that's the least likely explanation. Just listening to you now, something that sort of popped into my head was looking at the whole debate that has been going on between the school shootings that we see a lot of. And there's been this debate of violent video games and children see so much violence or the young people see so much violence that they almost become immune to it. And it's talking to you about the videos that ISIS or the Islamic State is putting on the website that are very violent, very graphic. You know, you almost wonder if it's, as you said, a society issue of where you're all getting so immune to violence. I mean, if you look at old fashioned movies, black and white individuals that die, there's never blood because that just wasn't accepted back then. And today it's so graphic in the TV shows and movies. And you just wonder if it's changing our society and making violence and things that a long time ago we might be shocked seeing on TV or in a movie that we just we are not anymore. You know, there's there's a lot of literature on stuff like this, and I don't feel like I'm qualified to sift through it all and, and tell you what the answers are. But <clears throat> I have a couple of, you know, reactions to that. I mean, when we talk about particularly, you know, when you get into the broad societal stuff, uh, video games and, and movies and TV and stuff that really everybody consumes, what we're talking about there is content that is more violent but is targeted to a wide audience so most of not all certainly there are examples you can find of of you know really kind of extreme sadism or very disturbing stuff that goes into these into a movie you know there might be a movie that's really disturbingly violent those don't tend to be the most successful movies the stuff that really inundates us as a society is targeted to a mass audience and it's usually paired up with other qualities like you know often you know if you look at a violent action movie it'll often have a very moralistic message in a lot of ways um the the demographic for for this stuff is very broad so it's not reaching out to try and give people a message explicit message that they should carry out violence and so the dynamics are going to be different um and I think that the statistically, you know, most of these, most of the stuff, when you look at it kind of from a statistical basis, there's not strong evidence right now to support that, you know, vid- violent video games cause people to become more violent. We do see cases, individual cases where people use video games in a very deliberate, calculating way to advance their plan of violence, such as Anders Brevik did. But uh, you know, as a broad phenomenon, I don't, I don't think the evidence seems to be there to me. Um, what we're talking about with ISIS, though, is a group that is, first off, it's explicitly sanctioning violence. And although it, it puts some ideological flavor on it, really, when you watch their videos, what they really seem to be doing is explicit, explicitly endorsing, uh, really pretty indiscriminate violence. Um, Secondly, it's real violence. It's not Hollywood violence. So it's not storytelling. It's not calculated. It's not done in the, you know, interest of telling a story or, or, uh, 
presented in in a art, clearly artificial light. Um, it, this is real violence, and it has a real violence has a different effect on people. I can tell you that I watched plenty of action movies in my life, and you know, I had a very different reaction the first time I saw an Al Qaeda in Iraq beheading video. Um, it's much more disturbing. It's much more emotionally engaging. Um, and then, you know, finally, what we see is some evidence that and we see them doing this on, on social media and, and in other ways is that they are really, if they see somebody who they think they can use, they will reach out and try and deliberately stimulate that person. Uh, the foreign fighters will, will, are constantly telling people to, to carry out lone wolf attacks back home. Um, and so you're getting prodding and you're getting affirmation in a way that you don't get from sort of just a, a broad increase in, in the level of violence that you see on TV. That idea of taking anyone on to commit an act of violence in their name or the idea of their name, it's almost very hypocritical looking at their idea of how this is the Islamic state. They're trying to portray it as this religious grand feat, so to speak, of creating this caliphate. But just looking at the message in that simple way, this is a message of violence. It's not religious. Of course, this is not true Islam. Um, none of us are saying that. So why don't some young people see this, that it's not a religious thing? Because you do hear about a young, lot of young people that want to go to Syria and do good in the name of this perceived idea of Islam. And for some reason, even though the Islamic State is putting out this extremely violent media, they still think they're going there for this greater good, this that they'll be accepted into heaven and have their virgins and, you know, be praised by Allah. It just seems so hypocritical when you look at it from the base idea of religion and Islam. Well, religion is subject to interpretation. So you see ranges of interpretation in any religion. So in, in Christianity, for instance, you will see a very wide range of interpretation of issues about women, the status of women, whether women can be priests or, uh, you know, abortion and homosexuality and, and all kinds of things. There's a huge amount of variation within Christianity on that front. And Islam doesn't have the same centralized authority structures that as a religion that Christianity tends to. Christianity, even in its many variations, usually has groups of people who are there to put official sanction on the beliefs of that particular variation of Christianity. And Islam is does not have, especially uh, Sunni Islam, which is where these guys are coming from, doesn't have these really centralized uh, arbiters to say what is and what isn't legitimate. And that gives recruiters a lot of room to make arguments. So you can go in and say, sure, this scholar says this, but this scholar says this. And people will often react to what is being told to them by somebody they know rather than, you know, going out and taking a doctoral thesis to figure out what the consensus is. Um, the, you know, I've, I've been involved in some very robust discussions about uh, the role of religion in, in radicalization over the last few days as we've been finalizing some bits of the book. And, you know, the attitude that I take is that I see, I see religion as a very powerful tool to reinforce somebody on the road to radicalization. I am not so sure that it is the cause by itself of radicalization. And, you know, there is no 
clear profile. There's no single cause that, that anybody has been able to credibly point to to why people get radicalized. And there is a you know substantial movement in this country, and I think it's kind of politically fueled to point to religion as the cause of radicalization rather than being part of the mix. And I and I think that's you know as I've written before, I think that religion provides you with a really powerful tool to reinforce the legitimacy of a belief you already have. And if you have a political grievance, for instance, or you have a personal problem in your life and you want to lash out and you're looking for something to help push you over to edge to get you there, religious belief might be the thing that does that. Or it might keep you in the movement longer than your own judgment. You might get involved in this and, you know, you have thoughts about whether it's right or wrong and religion can be used, especially by a, a manipulative recruiter in that context to crush doubts. You know, it's like we're going to convince you that we're right because God says we're right. And so you can't really argue with that. So I think religion is, is a really important part of this mix, but I don't think any religion is, is completely immune to this kind of manipulation. And I think that the lack of centralization in Islam may be a factor that, that makes it, this problem seems particularly robust at the moment in this area. So I completely agree with you. That was said beautifully. I want to kind of shift the topic. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the walking dead here. So uh, I'm glad you said that. No, 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 that was, that was wonderful. So I want to shift the topic to another piece you wrote for foreign policy, which complements this, I would say, um, it was almost a year ago, I think it was in February, titled War on Error. And you discussed Al-Qaeda, which Syria, Iraq, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, um, and you looked at the ongoing evolution of AQ. Um, and at the time you spoke of it being in the midst of dramatic tra uh, structural transformation with its primary focus on fighting wars and insurgencies. So as I said, we're almost a year out since you wrote this piece, and I was wondering... How do you view Al-Qaeda now, especially with the success of Islamic State and Al-Qaeda's ongoing skirmishes and the battles between these groups? Where do you see Al-Qaeda at the moment? Well, I think that piece holds up pretty well in terms of uh, what's happened since, it, since I wrote it. Um, you know, we've really seen a continued uh, shift into kind of war fighting mode. Um, I think that, you know, in the article I talked about, then there's kind of a structural problem for Al Qaeda in that its central leadership is, is so deeply underground that it can't respond swiftly when there's a, when they have a problem, when they have infighting, when they have conflicts or they they have defections out of the group, the central Al Qaeda is it's very difficult for them to get involved. It's not to say they have no role. They do. And they can use proxies and surrogates. And for so instance, you know, we've seen Zawahiri has sent proxies and surrogates to Syria to try and negotiate some of the end of these things. And, uh, you know, some of them have been killed by ISIS and some of them have just taken one side or the other. And meanwhile, since ISIS declared it was reestablishing the caliphate and declared that as part of that, all uh, other jihadi groups would be null and void and had to swear loyalty to the Islamic State. We've had one speech from Zawahiri, and it didn't directly address the problem, although it did kind of dance around it a little bit. Um, 
I think that, you know, I think that there's a problem. You have a problem when you have a center that is very slow moving and isolated and you have a periphery circle of, of activity in these affiliates where things are happening very quickly in very fluid situations and a lot of dynamic back and forth stuff going on. If these guys are, can't afford to wait for Zwahiri to tell them what to do in every instance and they have to exercise some judgment and I think that the dynamics that we're seeing here are just sort of getting more pronounced. And so what we're seeing now is that there are signs of fracturing going on in some of the affiliates, which I think you can at least partly attribute to the slowness of Al Qaeda central to respond. We look at, you know, the two, two most notable examples of this will be Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb uh, in North Africa, where we've seen, Jundal Khalifa is a splinter off of that. We, we saw that happen pretty early uh, in 2014, um, that they broke with AQIM and declared allegiance to what was then ISIS and have later since been granted official status as a, as a province of the Islamic State. Um, you know, when we first saw that, it wasn't clear to us whether it was just like a handful of people or whether it was, you know, a battalion of people or something in between. And I think what we're seeing now is that it's something in between. In Yemen, in Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, we had a really kind of extraordinary statement that came out, uh, you know, several weeks ago now, in which uh, AQAP, one of their top religious leaders, uh, really fired off a broadside against ISIS and said, you know, you've got to, you've got to stop this. They called on them to recant uh the fatwa they issued saying that everybody in AQAP had to declare loyalty to the Islamic state. So, you know, if they were not experiencing some attrition there, they wouldn't have had to call on him to recant in that way. I mean, I think it's a pretty clear indicator that there's significant division going on there too. And it's happening to them at a very critical time right now as, as the, the fighting in Yemen, Yemen's becoming, uh, you know, a very interesting, it's always been a very interesting and complicated place. This is a point where Al-Qaeda could potentially have put itself back on the map by taking a really aggressive uh, stand against the rise of the, the Houthis, the Shia movement that that is now a partner in the government there. And, you know, I suspect, uh, and I'm not a, not a Yemen expert, so I don't want to overstate my confidence in this, but I suspect that what we're seeing is that there's been some difficulty in getting a program together because they're too busy dealing with the fitna, uh, the infighting. And that's kind of the message that was in that, that video. And, you know, there are a lot of questions that we don't totally have answers to here. Um, for instance, the affiliates up until this statement from AQAP, uh, had issued, had been very careful in talking about the Islamic state with, uh, you know, basically putting out statements that praised them for their successes on the battlefield. But, we, you know, had some reservations about this whole caliphate thing and we're not getting on board with that, but we don't want to piss anybody off because we're afraid it's going to fracture our own group. And the question is whether those statements were made at the direction of Al-Qaeda Central, in which case Al-Qaeda Central is not making some very good strategic decisions would be my my evaluation of that. Um, or whether those, or whether they are taking that middle ground because they haven't heard anything from Al Qaeda Central, and we saw some hints about that in Syria. We have one of uh, a 
personality in, in Jabad al-Nusra, who's, you know, it's never quite clear. He's, he's a very feisty guy, and you're never quite sure whether he's on the ins or the outs with the leadership. So that, that it didn't get a lot of wide coverage because of that. But, I mean, he said, he put out a, a statement to Zwahiri, an open letter, and said, you know, where are you? We, we really need you to ring in on this, and we can't seem to – we keep calling and calling, and we don't get any answer. So, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot – of uh, moving parts right now. But uh, I think sort of the essential thesis of that piece, which, you know, first emphasized the fact that they're really to, that these guys are increasingly treating this as, as traditional warfare or at least insurgency rather than, than being a terrorist movement. I think that holds up very well as we've seen with ISIS taking over so much territory. And I think that, you know, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest to me that Al Qaeda and its affiliates are functioning any more efficiently in the face of this challenge. Um, you know, there was a statement, uh, Mark Lynch, Abu Arfark on Twitter, uh, wrote something about the Muslim Brotherhood in which he was talking about what happened to them in Egypt. And he said that, uh, he made the observation that it was radically destabilizing to the Muslim Brotherhood to actually take power because it was basically built on an assumption that it never could take power. That was like a, a fundamental belief of the organization is that it could never take power. And therefore, when they actually got power, they, they were unable to, to handle it in a, in a reasonable way. And the, the phrase he used was radically destabilizing was the effect of them actually taking power. And I think you can argue that this is Al-Qaeda's moment in that same in that same function. And I talk about this more in the book. I don't want to give away too much of the book. Spoilers. But uh, – <laughs> But I think Al-Qaeda was similarly built on the same assumption that it was an underdog whose success was generations in the future and that they never expected to be able to take power in a place or, or mount an army to fight in the same way that we're seeing ISIS do now. And I think this is, is, is pretty destabilizing in, in the affiliates. We see it pretty prominently. Uh, we see it in, in Pakistan too, really, because a lot of the Pakistani Taliban has been splintering for reasons that don't are not primarily about ISIS. But there's a lot of talk within those splinters about the example that ISIS is setting, and maybe it's something that that people should be following. Um, so you know, I think I think we're I think where we are right now is really a natural outgrowth of the stuff that I was writing about in in that piece, and I think that we're not. We're not near the end of that process yet. There's a lot of things that could happen yet. There are ways that Al-Qaeda could uh, regain some momentum. Um, the the threshold and difficulty of those those things would be increasing as this goes on and on. Uh, we have not seen Al-Qaeda lose an affiliate yet, uh, which is one of the main the main things that it still has going for it. Is all the affiliates are still in line. Uh, Al-Shabaab's leader, uh, Ahmed Gaudan, was killed a few months ago, and that was an opportunity there. If there was enough of support for the ISIS state within the power structure that runs al-Shabaab, they could have switched sides at that point, because when the leader dies, they have to pledge allegiance to Swahiri again, and they aren't automatic. It doesn't automatically carry over. So they did uh, very quickly, in fact moved to, to pledge allegiance to Zwahiri. So that was like the first big challenge that Al-Qaeda's faced on that front, and it survived it. So, 
you know, there's no, uh, there's no preordained outcome here. And, you know, this concept, sometimes we get into this in this conversation about Al-Qaeda versus ISIS as if one of them is going to win and one's going to lose and that's going to be it. And really, I think what's happening here is there's a struggle for a struggle to define the tactics and concepts that will define this movement for the next generation. And that's what this is really about. Um, that doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily require that Al-Qaeda stop existing as an organization or that it become impotent or irrelevant to what happens in jihadism. But it's about who's going to, who's going to set the rules of engagement and who's going to engage the next generation of recruits. And it seems to me there that, that ISIS is, uh, really making a lot of headway and, and has arguably has a claim that it, that it better represents the, the future of this movement. Well, excuse me, before I let you go, um, looking at one of Al-Qaeda's affiliates, um, Jabhat al-Nusra, it seems like they've gained a lot of popularity with what's taking place in the Syrian conflict. And I was wondering, so al-Nusra has this popularity, so to speak, I mean, just like ISIS has a popularity, of course, as you were saying, the Islamic State seems to have a very strong popularity when it comes to this conflict. But looking at the al-Nusra front, do you think al-Qaeda has been able to reap this popularity at all because al-Nusra is an affiliate? Or is this something that people are focusing more on al-Nusra and it's gaining its own strength on its own, almost? Well, it's difficult to know how much al-Nusra is getting guided from al-Qaeda Central. But what we have seen happen at this point is uh, al-Nusra was, was suffering pretty badly with the rise of ISIS uh, in the, as, as 2014 ground on. Um, they were... Under a lot of pressure, uh, ISIS was poaching recruits from them. There was some back and forth movement on this, but it seemed like the momentum was more toward ISIS. ISIS was also defeating them militarily on the ground. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that, you know, Jabhat al-Nusra was trying to operate within this kind of rebel alliance model that we've been talking about for a long time. And so in the last couple of weeks slash months, what we've seen is that al-Nusra is moving away from the rebel alliance model and deciding to take over mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, what's left of the resistance. There are a lot of reasons for this. It's very complicated. It's, uh, you know, I, I follow this, these internal dynamics as best I can, but I'm not, uh, I can't quote you chapter and verse on them, but there are a couple of fairly significant things that sort of played out on this. I mean, the first, I think, is that when we first started doing airstrikes in in Syria, the very first day that we started doing airstrikes in Syria that were announced as targeting the Islamic State, we hit on those uh, and Arar al-Sham and subsequently Arar al-Sham, uh, which is the other big jihadist group that was functioning here. And, you know, we did this because, according to the administration, because of this Khorasan group, which is a, a group of a cell of Al-Qaeda central operatives who had gone to Syria to plan attacks. And you know, there's there's been a lot of talk back and forth, uh, you know, from most of us looking at it from the outside about exactly what kind of threat this Khorasan group represented. But the fact is, is that whatever threat it represented, the hits against al-Nusra and Arar fractured the, the rebel alliance. And, you know, Jabhat al-Nusra has started attacking 
rebels who are affiliated with the U.S., who the U.S. supports, and taking their territory and taking their weapons and taking the weapons that we gave to them. And Arar al-Sham was hit by the suicide bombing that, uh, or a bombing, the circumstances of it are still a little murky, I think. But there was a bombing some weeks ago that wiped out its top leadership. So, you know, what I would expect to see is a lot of regrouping and potentially some change of direction there. Overall, you know, I think what we're probably moving toward is that Jabhat al-Nusra is going to, uh, you know, be the be the leading voice of the Syrian resistance pretty soon after ISIS. So, I mean, we, there's still a lot of stuff that could happen. It's many moving parts. I'm not making this, uh, you know, as a, a confident prediction. But it does seem like, you know, al-Nusra is in, possibly in a position to just consolidate the rest of the what remains of the alliance underneath them uh, in, in most meaningful respects. But, you know, again, I, I, I qualify that a lot. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do a new year's prediction. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to bet my rent money on that one. So, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like, as you said, there's so many moving parts and ah, <laughs> sometimes getting your head around, it can be quite confusing. Yeah. Well, I want to give you the moment to maybe touch on something we haven't or a final comment before I let you go. Um, it's up to you. So I'll pass the floor over to you. Uh, I don't really have anything too much. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of real, really interesting stuff going on right now. And there, uh, you know, a lot of moving parts. Things are very fluid and dynamic. It's a little terrifying to write a book uh, that you have to close in, in, you know, January and, and wait until March before it hits the stands. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think we're, we're also, uh, starting to catch up with the changes. I think last year, a lot of what we saw happening on the ground and the rise of ISIS and, and there were a lot of people who were caught off guard by that. And there's been a lot of retrenching of resources and, and, and rethinking of analyses. And we're starting to get our, our hands around the, reality of the ISIS, ISIS is a separate but related problem from Al-Qaeda. And, uh, you know, that's where a lot of, lot of the future, uh, future work that I'm doing is, is certainly kind of pointing toward ISIS. And that's, uh, not just, you know, I mean, I think that it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon and it's, uh, not necessarily like in, you know, the greatest threat that the world has ever seen. It's not an existential threat to the United States, but there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the space, and they're they're making cha- they're changing extremism, I think, uh, and providing a a new kind of model for extremism that we're going to see being tested out over the next months and years, not just by them, but by other other groups as well. And so I'm looking forward to the book coming out, to adding a contribution to that, and I will have a uh, paper coming out in March that I'll I'll be announcing some more details on soon. But it's really going to look at the social media piece of this in in more detail, I think, than has ever been seen before. So, ooh, teasers, teasers. <laughs> That's a really sneaky way to end the show, Jam. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and. Honestly, congratulations about the book to you and Miss Stern, um, your co-author. And I will have my co-producer post the link to the foreign policy piece that we started off this talk with, the Islamic State Irregulars, so um, our audience can listen to it. And just we hope to have you on the show when your book comes out, because I definitely will be reading it. So I'm just going to throw that out there towards you. (laughs) Absolutely. 
Oh, thank you so much for coming on and a very happy new year to you. You too.